0: Our next speaker is going to be Dr. Susan Buckbinder from the University of uh, California in San Francisco. And she's also the co PI of the San Francisco Bay Area uh, Clinical Trials Unit uh, for NIAID. And Susan's going to be talking to us about common pre exposure prophylaxis questions and cases. Dr. Buckbinder.
1: So um, I'm really pleased to be leading this case, uh, case-based presentation on pre-exposure prophylaxis. So let's get started. So these are my uh, disclosures. And now um, these are the learning objectives. So we will talk about same-day prep starts. We're going to talk about 2 prep regimens. We're going to talk about the um, relative advantages and disadvantages of TDF FTC and TAF FTC prep as well as a number of other issues. So let's start with uh, a question to the audience. Do you start PrEP on the same day, or do you wait for test results before prescribing PrEP? So one is same day, two is wait for lab results, three is I haven't prescribed PrEP, and four is something else. Okay, and it looks like uh, the majority wait for lab results, but we still have about a third that do same day starts, which is great. Um, what about the panel? Do you? Uh, do any of you do same day starts?
2: Uh, So this is Jeannie. I'll start. Um, I'm I'm comfortable doing it depending on the patient, right? Uh, It's really uh, context-specific. So if it's someone in whom I'm sure there is no chance of uh, acute uh, HIV infection, obviously a good symptom screen, Uh, someone who has not had really clear high-risk exposure uh, recently enough to make me concerned they could have undetected acute infection, um, somebody who's ready to take it and uh, is is uh, has really passed the pre-contemplated phase. Um, then I think a same day start is perfectly reasonable. Great. Um, let's
1: just review a little bit of data on same day starts. Um, so these were data that were presented at Cory last year from New York City Sexual Health Clinics in which they took PrEP candidates. They had almost, over 1,400 uh, PrEP candidates, and they screened them for kidney disease, chronic hep B infection, and acute HIV signs and symptoms. And if they didn't have any of those things, they went into an immediate PrEP arm shown on the left, and if they did, then they went to uh, delayed PrEP on the right. And you can see that 97% of people screened uh, able to, to get immediate PrEP. And then of those, only two had a GFR of less than 60. When So they were started on PrEP immediately, but their labs were drawn. Um, two were found to have a GFR of less than 60. Two were HIV positive. And so in that group, PrEP was stopped immediately, and they were able to do that within a couple of days. And then the other group, 97, 9, over 99%, were able to continue on PrEP. Whereas for the group that um, had delayed PrEP, you can see that some had a GFR of less than 60, some had a couple were HIV positive, um, a couple were uh, hepatitis B surface antigen positive. Overall, 14% didn't qualify for PrEP. So 86% did qualify for immediate PrEP or would have qualified for PrEP. and uh, but only 35 percent came back in. So there are some advantages to doing same day starts in order. It's sort of the bird in the hand um, idea. And so where you think, as Jeannie was saying quite thoughtfully, you've got someone who you have ruled out HIV infection and someone in whom you uh, you would really like to get them started on PrEP on that day and they're ready to start PrEP. You can start them same day, get their labs at the same time, as long as you have a mechanism for very close follow-up in case you do find that they have a contraindication to PrEP. So um, I think Jeannie's gonna talk about this a little bit more, but I was just interested in hearing um, how you're handling PrEP prescriptions now in the time of COVID. so do you require three monthly clinic visits and do three-month refills? Are you providing extra refills without additional HIV testing? Are you doing home testing without any HIV te- STI testing? Are you doing home HIV and STI testing and then refills? Are you not prescribing PrEP or are you doing something else? Okay, so most pe- mo- the most common one is that people are um, sticking with three-monthly visits and three-month refills, but there are some additional uh, people doing additional te- uh, prescriptions without uh, additional HIV testing. Okay, let's move on to the first case. Um, we have a 22-year-old man who has sex with men who comes to your office seeking PrEP. He has multiple partners, never uses condoms, and his most, receptive, his most recent receptive anal sex encounter was 48 hours ago. He's asymptomatic. What do you recommend? Do you send an HIV test to the lab and start PrEP if the test comes back negative? Do you start PrEP today or do you start PEP today? Okay. So we have about half we are going to start PEP today. Um, and let's talk about what the panel would do in this situation. You've got somebody who's coming in to start prep, but they've had a recent exposure.
3: So I think I think the fact that the person came and is, is really important because I find it as a, as an opportunity to to start the dialogue. But more importantly, in this individual, you're within 72 hours, and I think starting PEP and then transitioning PEP to prep will be very important. Or you may need to I mean you may need to transition have the treatment, right? Because you may, he may come back and be infected. But I think starting him on PEP makes sense at this
1: point.
2: Yeah. And so have that's... Where, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to agree with Carlos. He, he would have to work pretty hard for me not to advise him to have post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, I mean, you know, he, he's never... It, I mean, it, it depends a little bit on The high risk nature of his partner, but I think all bets are off, and to really be sure, you would want to do a a pep to prep transition. Great. So that this is sort of a a slide as
1: a reminder that um, we do have post exposure prophylaxis that we want to be able to take advantage of, and that's for anyone who's had a high risk exposure. Sorry, um, who's had a high risk exposure within seventy two hours of. within 72 hours of a high-risk exposure, but as we know, as early as possible is actually best. You wanna get lab tests on them, and obviously you're gonna, as uh, Carlos was saying, you wanna be sure that they're not actually already HIV infected, in which case your PEP is really starting treatment. And you are starting a three-drug regimen, so that's the difference between a PEP regimen and a PrEP regimen. PrEP regimens are generally two-drug regimens, um, although we'll talk a little bit about um, in a in a little bit. Um, and then you can just seamlessly transition after 28 days if they have remained uh, antigen-antibody negative. You can just transition them to, uh, to drug post exposure uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Okay, let's go to our next case. We have a 21-year-old woman who asks you to pres- prescribe PrEP. She states that she always uses condoms with her multiple sexual partners, but she'd like to stop using them. So what do you recommend? You don't offer PrEP because condoms have worked well for her up to this point and you don't want to risk STIs. You don't offer PrEP because it actually doesn't work all that well in women. You offer PrEP but tell her it works less well if she has STIs. Or you offer PrEP and counsel that only condoms will prevent STIs but let her make the condom decision. Go ahead and vote. Okay, so
3: That made made me feel good. (laughs)
1: Good. <laughs> Go ahead, Carlos. Tell us about. Uh, no, I mean, that,
3: that was the, the answer we needed to see, right? That made me, made me feel good because, number one, I mean, I think that, that yes, condoms, you know, work to prevent uh, F- HIV and, and STDs, but PrEP works a lot better to prevent HIV. And I think that just because somebody is using PrEP, they should continue using condoms to prevent STDs. And I also think that there's a lot of myths that PrEP doesn't work in women. And I think we've seen over and over that PrEP works in women if women take PrEP. So the fact that she wants to take PrEP, again, I, I find patients that come in and say, I want to be prescribed, as as it will be really hard to say no to somebody who says that. So yeah. your option has to be either you know, three or four or a combination of both, and four sounds like the right one because you, you don't want to say take PrEP or forget about your STDs. You, you want to say take PrEP and continue using condoms. And uh, and I think we need to do a much better job getting that message out.
1: Great. Anyone else have anything to add? I'll just show the the, the typical slide <clears throat> that graphs uh, adherence on one axis against effectiveness on the other. And what you can see is with all of these,
3: it's not moving forward.
1: Sorry. Uh, can you hear me?
3: Yeah, now it's fine. Everything's fine.
1: So, um, as if we look at adherence on one axis and effectiveness on the other, these are a large, a number of large, uh, efficacy studies. And you can see that men who have sex with men, um, for the most part, had high levels of adherence, as did these heterosexual serodiscordant couples and one study in heterosexuals. The reason for this, I think, myth, largely myth, about uh, PrEP not working in women is that effectiveness was quite low in a number of studies where adherence was quite low. And there is a meta-analysis that was done that shows that, yes, PrEP does work in women if they take it regularly and with higher adherence, you get to a, a lower relative risk of uh, HIV acquisition. But we do have to remember that the PK is somewhat different in women than it is in men, or it's different for vaginal uh, sex rather than it is for rectal sex, and that tenofovir of concentrates at 10 to 100-fold higher levels in rectal than vaginal tissue, and it's cleared more rapidly from vaginal than rectal tissue. And so for that reason, we think that women really need to to take six to seven pills per week in order to maximize effectiveness. Although there have been some demonstration projects that suggest that they might still have high levels of effectiveness, even with lower levels of uh, dosing. But we do counsel women to try to adhere on a daily basis to PrEP. The question about whether or not STIs reduce the efficacy of PrEP, um, there are good data now from randomized controlled trials the IPREC study and the Partners PrEP study that showed no difference in efficacy of PrEP despite high levels of uh, STIs, and the same thing in open-label studies in the PROUD and US uh, MSM PrEP demo study. Very high rates of STIs, and yet very high levels of PrEP effectiveness. Okay, we'll go to our next case. Your 26-year-old transgender female patient says she's just heard about a new long-acting injectable PrEP agent and she'd like to learn more about it. What do you tell her? Do you tell her that long-acting cabotegravir is given as two injections every 12 weeks for PrEP? That long-acting cabotegravir was shown to provide a higher level of protection than TDF-FTC, but only for men who have sex with men? That long-acting cabotegravir must be given with a one-month oral lead-in and a prolonged oral phase when discontinued? Or that long-acting cabotegravir should be combined with long-acting rilpivirine when used as prop. Go ahead and vote. Let's see the results. Okay, so, um,
3: you got a very informed crowd. I feel good about this.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, it's, well, Oh, I see. Okay. Sorry. I just, I needed to scroll down. Yes, we do have a very informed crowd. So uh,
2: who would like to speak about me Unmute myself. Um, Sure. So I think that probably um, the brightest light in the recent pandemic gloom was the results of HPTN 083 uh, presented by Rafi Landovitz and colleagues um, uh, at the recent IAS meeting. And um, really, Astonishing analyses that initially, um, as Susan's probably going to talk about, showed trend showed significant protection, uh, basically non-inferiority, but ultimately with more seroconversions uh, analyzed, showed superiority to cabotegravir. So really exciting. The other point I'd make about that study is um, it was a really diverse group of MSM, as you'll hear. So um, very different than the Discover trial, which of course looked at TAF versus TDF, which is a was a very mono kind of homogeneous uh, group. So um, really exciting. Will that happen in women? We won't know till maybe later this year, Susan, are you going to talk about it in uh, HPTN 084? Um, and we won't know in pregnant women or breastfeeding women for God knows when, which I cannot help but saying. So I'll turn yes. it over to you. Do you want me to say any more? Okay. No, that's great. Thank okay. you. So you, you summarized it beautifully. So
1: cabotegravir is an analog of dolutegravir. It's an integrase inhibitor. Um, it's got a very long half-life in its oral form, but it's got an exceptionally long half-life in its injectable form. And there are two efficacy trials right now of cabotegravir long-acting. The HPTN-083 study, which was what was reported at the uh, AIDS 2020 meeting, and HPTN-084, which is a study in women in sub-Saharan Africa, both of the studies are double-blind, double dummy which means that everybody's getting an injection and everybody's taking a pill. It's just that for half of them, they're getting a, an active uh, injection and a placebo pill, and the other half are getting a placebo injection and an active pill. Um, both of them have three steps. There's an oral lead-in phase for uh, a month to be sure that it's well-tolerated because once it's injected, you can't dialyze it off, and so you want to be sure that it's well, uh, well-tolerated then there were loading doses at zero and four weeks and every eight week injections, and then an oral phase to cover that, the tail that we'll talk about in just a moment, where you've got low levels of drug persisting for actually several years, a number of people. Um, both trials were using FTDF as the comparator, and there are uh, two bridging studies in adolescents, one in men who have sex with men and transgender women, and the other in cisgender women. So uh, the study, um, we initially heard that in May of 2020, the DSMB met for a planned interim analysis, and they stopped the blinded phase of the study because it met the pre-specified non-inferiority early stopping boundaries. And at that time, we learned that the overall incidence was less than 1%, which indicated in this high-risk group of uh, individuals that, that probably both arms were working, and at that time it was uh, at least considered to be non-inferior, cabotegravir was non-inferior, but as Jeannie mentioned, after doing a thorough analysis, they found that cabotegravir was actually superior to FTDF with an odds ratio of 0.34, meaning a 66% reduction in uh, HIV acquisition in people getting cabotegravir compared to FTDF. Um, Now that appeared to provide protection in all subgroups by age, race, ethnicity, Men who have sex with men and transgender women, um, all of those groups seem to at least be non inferior, if not um, superior, although there wasn't power to look at superiority in the subgroups. Injection site reactions were higher in the cabotegravir arm, uh, 80% versus 30% in the uh, placebo arm, with 2% discontinuing. But I just a little caveat. in each of the arms dropped out by two years. So we don't know if that's because they didn't want to get the injections, they didn't want to take the daily pills, or there were other life events that made them drop out of the study. But um, for the people who remained in the study, injection site reactions as a cause of discontinuing was was quite limited. And I just want to point out that what Jeannie said was uh, also really important. There were 12% of the population were transgender as opposed to the DISCOVER trial where only 1% were transgender, and 50% of the uh, U.S. participants were African-American or black. And so they really did recruit a very diverse cohort that reflects the the epidemic in the MSM and transgender populations. These are just the – this is a slide of the actual results um, that show – that uh, there were 13 infections in the capotegravir arm, 39 infections in the TBF-FTC arm, and uh, there w- it actually uh, was not only non-inferior but was actually superior with this odds ratio of 0.34. Now, there are a number of unanswered questions about capotegravir long-acting. Um, as Jeannie also mentioned, the HPT-084 study is nearly fully enrolled, and so we don't yet know whether or not it works in cisgender women. We also don't know yet what the adherence was like in each of the arms and why the breakthrough infections occurred in each of the arms. In particular, we're interested in what the drug levels were at the time of infection, and that's particularly true for the cabotegravir. There were five people in the cabotegravir arm who seemed to be getting their every two-month injections and yet they became infected. And so the question is, what were the drug levels in those individuals and uh, can breakthrough infections still occur in the setting of adequate drug levels? When the breakthrough infections occurred in the oral run-in phase of the cabotegravir long-acting arm, because again, there were several that occurred in that arm, uh, in that component, that phase of the study, was it that also due to PK or was it due to something else? And was there transmitted resistance? And then. The really critical issue is did resistance develop after infection in each of the arms? Um, and in particular, we're concerned about that because of this long tail that I mentioned. Um, if you look at week 60 or week 76 post the last injection, and this is from phase two data, you can see that nobody still had four times the PAIC-90, which was the target that they were shooting for, which is not Surprising, given that you need uh, injections every eight weeks to keep yourself to, um, at, at that level. What was concerning was that 13% of the men and 42% of the women at week 76 were, were, um, had low levels of drugs still present in their blood, And so the concern there is that you might have too low a level to provide protection against acquisition, but high enough to select for resistance. And then the question of course is, if you select for resistance, are you wiping out the entire integrase class or is this specific to Cavitegravir? And so that's a a great concern. There also are logistical concerns that we need to consider. Um, This requires bi-monthly injections and their gluteal injections. So it's not quite as easy to do in the pharmacy waiting line. but I think we, and, and if you got the 1.1 million people in the United States for whom PrEP is indicated, that would be 6.6 million injections a year. So we're going to need to figure out how we actually integrate this into clinical practice. Can this be done outside of the clinic setting in some way? And so there are a lot of uh, logistical questions to still be answered. So let's turn to the next case. So, we so have,
3: let me, let me. let me oh, just, go ahead. Yes. Susan. I think that we need to also caution people that while well, this was very good, not everybody wants this. I can tell you several of my trial participants who were unblinded and are in the oral drug and are doing fine. They said, I don't want to switch to an injection. I'm fine taking pills. So if, if you're taking your Truvada and it's working for you, you know, I, I want to say that when we say here it was superior, you know, it was superior because people stopped taking their meds. But if they yeah. were taking their Truvada, it was just fine. So if you are doing your, your oral prep with pills and you're adhering with it and you're doing fine, you don't need to switch to an injectable.
2: Yeah, and I, if very I could good just good add, point. too, there, sorry, Susan, there's was, there was a lot of discussion, you know, when, when these studies were being designed about the fact that these types of injections would be very familiar to young women who are used to getting Depo-Provera or DMPA for contraception, but that for other populations, particularly young men, this would be a real – tough challenge to kind of have a lot of acceptance about. So it's really interesting to think about that and then see what's going to happen with 084 um, and think about it, particularly young women uh, and young men who really need access to long acting uh, biomedical prevention. Yeah. Excellent points. Thank you both. Okay.
1: Let's go to our next uh, case, which is a 48 year old man with um, hypertension who comes to requesting uh, PrEP. He has multiple partners, frequent sex, and frequent STIs. His creatinine is 1.7. Creatinine clearance is 61 milliliters a minute. What would you do? Do you prescribe daily TDF-FTC? Do you prescribe daily TAF-FTC? Do you prescribe every other day TDF-FTC? Do you prescribe pericoidal or 2-1-1-PREP, or do you tell him he should use condoms? Okay, so good. We've got 86% saying prescribed TAF FTC. Is that what the panel would do?
3: Yeah, I would do TAF FTC FTC with a little bit of doxy, (laughs) (laughs) But we can talk about that later.
2: I think that's that's coming up in my talk.
3: Exactly, exactly. Yes,
1: (laughs) Yes. okay. So um, let's uh, close the – okay. Um, So just – to let you know that in general, uh, TDF-FTC is well-tolerated. Um, we, what we've seen in other studies is that if you start off with a baseline estimated GFR of less than 90 or you're a little bit older, you're more likely to, uh, to uh, have a drop in GFR. Um, in the Partners Prep and Partners Demo study, the same risk factors were also the case, as was uh, being uh, lighter weight. But, sorry, here we go. Um, Over 75% of the creatinine increases were unconfirmed on repeat testing, and there was no difference in picking up true renal effects um, based on every six month testing, so you didn't need to test every three months. In the IDU study, there was no effect of recent IDU on creatinine, and it was more likely, um, you were more likely again to have renal effects with increased age. But in all of these studies, creatinine reverted to near baseline after the trial and rechallenge has been used successfully. So that was what we were left with before we had the DISCOVER trial. Um, we did just mention the DISCOVER trial. It unfortunately only had about 1% were transgender women. So le- little information in transgender women, but um, close to 5,400 um, men who have sex with men who were randomized to either FTAF or FTDF. And the results were that, uh, and these were just presented at CROI in 2020, the follow-up data, that FTAF was non-inferior to FTDF. So not superior, but non-inferior to FTDF. The safety data favored FTAF in terms of bone mineral density and renal function, but the the differences were really minimal. It was a 1% to 2% difference in bone mineral density at the spine and hip and no difference in fractures, and only a four milliliter per minute difference in estimated GFR at 96 weeks. And you'll see that in your pre-test and post-test, that the differences were really minor, and that was the only difference really uh, in terms of renal function was a four milliliter a minute difference. And then favoring FTDF were lipids and body weight, but again, very minimal differences between the two, an 11 milligram per deciliter lower total cholesterol, no difference in total cholesterol to HDL ratio, and only a one kilogram difference in body weight. So um, Julia Marquez created this infographic that um, providers can use in trying to decide what do you do, do you, which do you prescribe for daily PrEP, TDF, FTC, or TAF FTC. You can see that the pill sizes are different. Um, only uh, FTDF has been tested in heterosexuals and people who inject drugs whereas uh, both have been tested in men who have sex with men and a small number of transgender women. The safety, again, favors slightly towards uh, FTAF for bone mineral density and creatinine, um, whereas LDL and body weight favor slightly FTDF. Um, but the, the main difference is going to be in cost. Right now they cost approximately the same, but uh uh, FTDF is going to be going generic in 2020. Um, and so uh, that should bring the price down, if not immediately over time. Any, any other comments about this before we move on? Okay. So the next case is a 34-year-old uh, MSM who has sex with partners approximately, and I can't see this, sorry, twice per month. He doesn't want to take daily pills because his sexual exposures are relatively infrequent, but he doesn't always use condoms. So what would you do? Do you encourage him to use condoms? Do you think because his exposure is relatively low, he doesn't really need to worry about PrEP? Do you encourage him to take daily PrEP? Do you have him start PrEP seven days before before sexual episodes, or do you prescribe on-demand or 2 on one PrEP? Go ahead and vote. Okay, so we've got almost uh, three quarters who are saying that they prescribe two-on-one prep, which is great. Um, Do the panelists use two-on-one prep?
2: I don't use it myself. Personally, personally (laughs) (laughs) prescribe it. Sorry, I would if I needed it. Yes.
3: I think you know. I think it's a you know it's a it's a it's a great way to. Prescribe PrEP to somebody like the patient here. I think the, uh, you know, un- infrequent sex, uh, if I recall, there's a paper suggesting there's an analysis from uh, Jean-Michel Molina in, in Lancet HIV not, not too long ago, suggesting that as little as five episodes of sex per month, you're still doing well if you're doing this regimen. So yeah. you don't need to go to daily PrEP. If you're having, you know, once a week sex, you're probably fine using... You know, two one one. And I think the challenge I always found is that at least French men seem to know when they're going to have sex and they can plan this appropriately. (laughs) It's a little harder when you really don't know.
1: Yeah, and it's because they open a bottle of wine first. Right, exactly.
2: First, before or after. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that's true. And, and, you know, even when you look at the original, uh, Ypres-Gay study, right, there were, there, it was interesting. I mean, what was the average number of doses per week? Wasn't it a four or so? So like four or seven days, yeah. I think people yeah. were taking it, even using it in this regimen. So I, th- I kind of think of this regimen as a spectrum where people may just end up, as long as they have four anyway, you're probably getting enough coverage if you're not having a lot of sex every day. Um but i would I would be very comfortable in this man doing five yeah,
1: okay, and that's exactly right. So just for people who are not aware of two one one prep it's two tablets two to twenty four hours before sex, one tablet twenty four hours after that and one tablet twenty four hours after that so that's that's why it's called two one one It could be called two one 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 depending on how much you have sex because you continue taking daily pills until forty eight hours after the last dose. If the last pill was within seven days, then you don't need the loading dose of two pills. You can just use a single pill to start. Um, but as uh, was discussed, it was very highly effective. Um, in the RCT, it was 86% reduction in HIV acquisition, and in the open-label extension, a 97% reduction compared with the placebo arm. But as as Jeannie pointed out, uh, there were – People were taking on average four and a half pills a week, which is essentially equivalent to uh, four pills a week, which from this modeling data where we gave people directly observed therapy two days a week, four days a week, or seven days a week with FTC, uh, tenofovir, um TDF, and this was in a low-risk group of individuals, and then were able to map onto what were their drug levels like uh, and mapped onto the IPREC study, you can see that with four doses a week, you're nearly as efficacious as seven days a week. And so that's why we say that uh, MSM probably only need four doses a week. Um, And so people were, the question was, does this work for people who are having even less frequent sex? And so uh, they did do Jean-Michel Molina and his team did do another um, analysis of people who were taking uh, PrEP less frequently and found that in that group as well, it was highly effective uh, in preventing HIV acquisition. So 211 is a great regimen in some cases. Um, CDC still continues to recommend only daily PrEP, and it's the only licensed indication by the FDA. But the IAS USA guidelines do recommend 211 PrEP, as an alternative to daily prep for men who have sex with men, and WHO has endorsed 211 prep as well, um, you do need to be able to plan ahead for that pre-dose. So um, you you do need to be able to know that you're gonna that you've got at least two hours before you're gonna have sex, um, and you know you need to know that you can take the post doses. And people should be counselled to use it with all their partners, not to pick and choose w- with whom they use it. Um, it's only been tested in FTDF, so it shouldn't be used with FTAF. And daily prep is the only recommended option for cis and transgender women and people who inject drugs because there aren't data, and also the PK may suggest that it may not be as highly effective in those populations. Um, just as a. Yeah, t-
3: yeah. And Susan, I would say okay. things. Just to remind people, we are not using this, Is not recommended in women also. And uh, and the reality is, even though CDC does not recommend it, it is really – I mean, this is being used in the community all the time, and everybody yes. knows about it.
1: Yes. Thanks. Thanks, Carlos. And these are the – this is sort of the head-to-head comparison. You, it, you can only use it in men who have sex with men. You shouldn't use it if somebody's got chronic hepatitis B because it can trigger a flare. You do need to be able to plan, and it may not have as much forgiveness. But other than that, it's it's a very reasonable option for people who are uh, can plan ahead for their sex and are having sex less frequently. Okay, let's go to the next case. Your thirty uh, one year old patient on prep comes in for his routine quarterly lab tests. His fourth generation antibody test comes back positive, but the confirmatory test and viral load come back negative. So what do you do in this situation? Do you, Repeat the test but continue PrEP as you assume the fourth generation test is a false positive? Do you repeat the tests and stop PrEP but start ART for acute HIV infection? Do you repeat the tests and stop PrEP until you can determine what the infection status is, or do you do something else? Okay. Let's see. So we've got, uh, this is in uh, accordance with um, the fact that there is no right answer here. So we've got a, a, a spectrum of responses here. Um, how would the panelists handle uh, this kind of situation? Anything
2: to say? (laughs) Sure, I can start. Um, I, I don't think I would treat him for infection at this point because with ART, because I don't believe that he has a confirmed test. I mean, the fourth generation antibody test is relatively specific, and this would be a, I mean, if it was a false positive test, given the confirmatory test and the viral load, that that would be the concern. I think that number three is the safest thing to do. Um, I could see doing number one because at the time that your fourth generation antibody test comes back positive, you should detect a viral load, but it depends on the quantification level of the viral load. It may not be a highly sensitive test. So I personally would feel the most conservative thing would be to stop prep have a conversation with him about the implications of stopping prep really really important right because there could be a big downside to stopping prep if he's gonna go right out and have a very high risk exposure um so it's a conversation to have but i i would be more comfortable doing three and then the question would be when do you repeat the test i'd probably bring him back in a week to 10 days yeah I made okay. that up. I don't so,
3: know if that's right. So, so pretty, I mean, as you say, this is a really difficult situation. Yeah. We're seeing this with yeah. PrEP all the time. First of all, seroconversions are not what they used to be. Uh, you know, finding somebody was infected was really easy, but on PrEP is harder. And this could easily be somebody who wasn't taking his PrEP very well, got infected, then said, oh, my God, I better take my medicines, took their medicines, and now they have a suppressed viral load because they're, in effect, partially treating their HIV. Right. Great and answer. and that could be the situation here. So, uh, I think, I think you can go in many different ways, but I would have a conversation about adherence with this person. And if I truly thought this could, because this could be an infection and, and he's got a suppressed viral load because he started back taking his prep, I would probably do number two. I would repeat the, the test and, and, and put it, and up his regimen to a, to a, to a three drug regimen, waiting to see what happened. But if you did number three, you could probably also get away with it. And again, If he's infected, you're gonna see his viral load come up. But this this is a very difficult situation and we've seen this over and over.
0: So for the panelists, what about getting an HIV DNA value?
2: I mean, you could if he was in a study, you would, but like, you know, in 083, but the reality is that it's not, I don't know how available it is for your average person providing primary care for somebody in this situation. And I also think that, um, you know, that would be more important to adjudicate whether or not he had covert or suppressed uh, infection, prob- possibly as the result of taking PrEP, which I, on Truvada, I think would be less Likely than it would right. be something like cabotegravir.
1: So this is just a, a slide to remind us that uh, the viral RNA is going to come up first, and then you get your antigen, and then you get your antibody. Um, and so sometimes, for instance, if you have a positive fourth generation and negative confirmatory, but you you do a viral load and that's positive, that may be because you're just early in infection and the person has not yet, uh, they've got antigen, but they don't yet have antibody enough to trigger uh, a second generation test, which is what some of the confirmatory tests are. Um, In this situation, you have a negative viral load. And so you're stuck with this quandary of what do you do in this situation? So clearly you do repeat the test. And if you can repeat it with a um, a different manufacturer that's Uh, all the better, just in case uh, you you see differences in response. But if the person has been adherent, you um, may want to continue them on PrEP because you'll maintain protection. But, of course, if they're actually infected, you run the risk of resistance. Um, If you know that they were not adherent to PrEP, then you might be more concerned about them being actually infected. But the... um, Some people would not want to start someone on lifelong therapy without actually having confirmation of infection. Um, The most conservative thing to do is to stop PrEP and reassess HIV infection status, but that presumes that the person will not be exposed during that period of time when you've stopped PrEP because you wouldn't want to put them at risk. So... These are very thorny situations to uh, resolve, and there is help. Um, There's a PrEP line, a warm line, from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time um, that you can call to get expert advice if you do have these unusual uh, serologic uh, responses, which we're seeing more frequently now with PrEP. Okay, let's go to the next case. A 28-year-old HIV-negative woman is in a zero-different relationship with an HIV-positive man. He's newly diagnosed and not yet stably virally suppressed. The couple wants to have a baby. What do you recommend? Do you wait for the male partner to become fully virally suppressed for at least six months before attempting pregnancy? Do you use PrEP because it's safe conception and in pregnancy? Don't use PrEP. its safety is unknown, use sperm washing instead or something else. Okay. So uh, about thinking, half of the people uh, say that it's safe. Go
3: ahead. Yeah, no, I think I I would go with number two. I think I would prescribe prep for this person. And is is uh, I mean, I'm not sure if the partner you know is going to become suppressed or the partner is going to be around and then not peer or not take their medication and the person is you know would be. She needs to be on prep right now, whether she, uh, you know, wants to have a baby or not. I think at this point in time, she should be, she should receive, uh, she should be on prep because he's not suppressed yet. So regardless of pregnancy, she needs to be on prep. So I would go with number two.
1: Yeah, great. Um, Well, we know that pregnancy is a particularly vulnerable time in terms of HIV acquisition as well. Um, These are data from uh, over 2,700 HIV-uninfected women and serodiscordant couples in which they were able to actually adjust for the viral load in the male partner. And you can see that um, the risk of pregnancy was 2.76-fold higher. Uh, the risk of HIV acquisition in pregnancy was 2.76-fold higher than in non-pregnant women, and that it actually rose sort of monotonically from early pregnancy to late pregnancy to postpartum, which was the riskiest uh, period of time. So she, as, as Carlos points out, she would have been at risk anyway, and now she may be at increased risk if she's trying to uh, become pregnant. There is good news in the in terms of safety. There are five studies of over 1,000 PREP-exposed women during pregnancy that have shown no difference in miscarriage, congenital anomalies, or growth through one year of infancy, and a systematic review of tenofovir exposure in pregnancy, uh, with 26 studies in HIV-positive women and seven in HIV-negative women, again, showing no adverse pregnancy or infant outcomes. So, PrEP should be safe in pregnant women and can be used in that situation. I'm going to just quickly do the last case. A 29-year-old woman in a zero-different relationship would like to stop using condoms. Her partner's not virally suppressed. She wants to know how long it will take her, how long she has to take daily PrEP before she's protected. What do you tell her? Three days, seven days, 20 days, 28 days, or I have no idea. Okay, seven days. This seems to have won the day, and 20 days is next in line, and that makes sense because, um, in fact, if you can close that out the poll, um, in PBMCs, uh, you achieve 89% achieve the EC90 after seven doses, so that's good news. For men who have sex with men, you can recommend either seven days before or a double dose start like in 211 prep and probably to stop two days after the last sexual act. CDC still recommends 20 days before for women, but there's a growing consensus that seven days is likely adequate to get up to a high enough level to provide protection. But just to remember that uh, women need six to seven doses a week while men only need four to seven doses for maximal protection. Did the panelists have anything
2: to say about that? um no just that just to add that i think it's i think it's one of the reasons that um you know people have this sort of wrong uh, as carlos mentioned wrong view that prep doesn't really work in women it takes longer to get therapeutic i mean again there's a little bit less forgiveness but we really need to emphasize that it does work if it's taken daily
1: great and i think we're supposed to turn to the q a now um we've done we have time to talk about the uh, about hormones, but uh, or these other things. But let's just go to the Q and A session.
0: Great, thank um, you. Thank you, everybody, on the panel, and thank you, Dr. Buckbinder. So, a couple of questions: um, Will we ever be able to do away with the oral lead-in for cabotegravir?
1: It's a great question. Um, does anyone on the panel want to address that? I mean, I think that it's really tough because once it's injected, you 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 bought it. You can't get rid of it. Um, and so I think that there's going to need to be an oral lead-in. But I think what we need to know is why did the infections occur yeah. in the oral lead-in in 083? Yeah,
2: and yeah, I and I, would, and I would like to. See, sorry, Carlos, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would like to see more detail on the oral lead-in data from 083 and 084. Um, I mean, my sense was that it was incredibly well tolerated and that if anything, it was just the injection site reaction. So I think it's probably going to be ultimately no different than Truvada. So, you know, who knows, but, but I think it's a great question.
0: Another question about the cabotegravir study is about the, um, post discharge tail. And it appeared that it was longer in women in the slide that you showed. How do you instruct people on how long to take medication after the tail and does as part of the tail, and is it different for men and women?
1: So um, we what we know is that the tail lasts longer in women overall and in people with a higher bone, um, BMI. Um, and so uh, what we don't know yet is how long you actually need to have that tail. That's another thing that we're hoping to learn from the study is that they've only given a, a year's worth of coverage for the tail. But what we know is that it can last three years in men and four years in women um, in the more extreme cases. And so I, it's not quite clear how long we're going to need to cover that tail for or if the tail needs to be covered. Um, but the concern is that it does need to be covered. And that is one of the, the potential uh, downsides to long-acting cabotegravir.
0: the last cabotegravir question, can it be administered in a non-gluteal site such as the thigh?
1: No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully. That's not how it was administered here, yeah. but it could be. Yeah. yeah.
3: And Carlos,
0: it's one just, thing it's you... It's just it's
1: a large injection. It's a, it's
3: a fairly large injection. It's a, not a trivial injection.
1: Carlos,
0: one thing you mentioned, and the basis of this question, is how do you diagnose acute HIV in people on PrEP? Are the symptoms attenuated and less obvious? Are the antibody tests not reliable? I mean, what's the best way to make a diagnosis?
3: I mean, I think, on, I uh, think, I think all of the above. I think you have to be relying on on getting a discordant result, or you have to be relying on getting a low positive antibody test, or you have to be looking at at viral load in some settings, and you have to again talk to the person about whether there could be potential signs of exposure. But you know, any that that the presentation is very delayed, and so is the seroconversion.
0: Okay, so getting away from the or one question is regarding. Um, not the 2 on one but uh, scheduled dosing like Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, you know, to work around people's weekends. Is there any data supporting that?
1: Um, just the data from the that we have from the um, modeling data that suggests that four days a week may be okay. And so people talk about the T's and S's, the Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday is probably adequate. But just for men who have sex with men, that's probably not true for uh, other populations. And I didn't get to a case in transgender women, but there are some data that suggests that for transgender women, the good news is that the uh, TDF FTC does not interfere with their hormones. So that's true for both women and men. Um, There were data just presented at IAS and there have been other, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, at AIDS 2020. Mm -hmm. There are data that are... um, that have come out, though, from a number of studies suggesting that there may be some small decrease in tenofovir levels in transgender women who are on uh, hormonal therapy. And so we don't really know exactly what that means. The data from AIDS 2020 suggested that there was no difference. There are other data that suggests that there is a lowering of, um, of tenofovir, and so we need to get a little more, more information about that.
0: Okay. Um, also, about intermittent prep. Um, if you had somebody who's a hepatitis B non-responder to vaccines, would you recommend a daily tenofovir-based prep, or would intermittent tenofovir or TAF-based prep be uh, efficacious? Do we have any data on preventing Hep B trans- or acquisition?
1: Well, I think, um, I don't think I would necessarily uh, base my decision about 2 on one PrEP on whether they, if they're, if we know that they're chronically infected with hepatitis B, then I wouldn't no, use it. No, this is no. no. This,
3: this, You're talking this, about prevent, this is PrEP for hepatitis B.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Yeah.
0: Somebody who didn't respond to the HBV vaccine. Any thoughts?
2: Kind of a niche question.
0: Yeah, it kind yeah. of is.
2: But um, but it's a great question. I'm sure it's happened. I, I've never encountered it. I guess I would say um, it, when, I, would, I would encourage it. I think it couldn't hurt, and it could probably, right. probably protect. But what the threshold of the dosage level that you would need, I have no idea. I'm sure somebody knows, though. Yeah, I don't protect. know.
0: Yeah, I think it's an area where we don't have any data. So, last question.
3: Um, it must be, if the area we don't have data it must be like COVID.
0: Yeah. For those using TAF for PrEP, how long do you recommend that they be on it before they um, consider themselves protected? The same as for TDF or different?
1: It's a great question. I, I would assume that it would be about the same as for TDF. Uh, and so I, I would use the same. Uh, the same thought. The thing is that what we don't know is if it works as 2 one and so I don't know that the double dose beforehand is, is going to be uh, appropriate for somebody, but certainly for if you um, – it's probably true that people are protected long before seven days, but the seven days is the conservative way of looking at uh, when, when you have onset of full activity.
0: Okay, great. Well, thanks a lot, everybody, and thank you. That was an excellent discussion and presentation. I'll now turn it back over to Dr. Sag, who will be leading us into the next session. Great. Thank you.